Last week we left Martin Luther hiding in a fortress castle called Wurtberg. And he was translating the Bible into everyday German. And if you weren't here with us last week, then you may not know that today I'm presenting the final in a series of five sermons on Martin Luther and the European Reformation. In preparation for the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther posting his 95 theses um, on that uh, church door on All Saints' Eve, um, October 31st, 1517. Uh, so the 500th anniversary is now only two sleeps away. Well, it wasn't uh, terribly long before Martin moved back to his hometown of Wittenberg. Um, and he was still in chronic fear of his life. But by now the Reformation had gathered so much momentum in Germany that he was reasonably safe, especially in his hometown, uh, wherein he was considered a very great hero indeed. And he needed to return to his hometown for several reasons. Some reasons were personal. Um, his solitary confinement in a cell in Wartburg allowed him to get a lot of work done, but otherwise, it was driving him nuts. He had very few visitors, and Martin was undoubtedly an extrovert, and he was lonely and depressed. Isolated, lonely, and with little exercise, Martin struggled both with his bowels, and he wrote frankly about his battle with constipation, as well as with his libido. And Martin wrote, quote, I sit here like a fool and hardened in leisure. I pray little, yet burn in a big fire in my untamed body. I am ardent in lust, laziness, leisure, and sleepiness, unquote. Well, the poor man needed to get out more, as we might say. But he needed to leave Wittenberg um, sorry, he needed to leave Wartburg for Wittenberg, ultimately, though, not for personal reasons, but because the Reformation needed him on the ground. There was a lot happening, and I'm just going to mention a couple of things briefly. One thing is that in Wittenberg and elsewhere, various Christians and groups of Christians were claiming to have direct revelations from God, visions, God speaking directly to people, not through Scripture, prophets and prophecy, dreams and revelations. And one such man, a man named Thomas Munster, already by 1521, um, the same year as the Diet of Worms, uh, uh, Thomas was writing about how Luther worshipped a mute God, one who did not speak to the soul but through dead words on a page. And he dismissed what he called mere scripture in favor of a, of a more direct experience of spirituality. God's words had to be heard directly from God's mouth, not through the Bible. He wrote, quote, Anyone who does not feel the spirit of Christ within him is, or is not quite sure of having it is not a member of Christ, but of the devil, unquote. So within the church, there were multiple fires to be put out. And out in the world, there were real fires to be put out. Um, Martin's courage uh, and uh, his freedom in rejecting the authority of the Pope inspired a movement of people who had long been seeking freedom from political tyranny. The peasants of Germany were uniting 
and demanding social reform. A document was published, the 12 Articles of the Peasants. Article 1 was the right for a community to elect its own pastor rather than having one imposed on them by a distant bishop or pope. The pastor was to, quote, teach us the holy gospel, pure and simple, without human addition, doctrine, or ordinance, unquote. Other articles present demands for the abolition of compulsory tithes and end to burdensome taxation, the right to hunt and fish and collect wood, and the end to serfdom, which was the slavery of the tenant farmer to his uh, uh, landlord in feudal societies. Well, to cut a complex story short and to simplify, peaceful protest rallies turned violent and groups of protesters turned into armies. The resulting uprisings are perhaps somewhat inaccurately referred to as the German Peasants' War of 1524 to 1526. It was a movement rather than a war, but there were battles. And in the end, perhaps as many as 100,000 peasants were slaughtered by the nobles. Uh, Martin Luther took um, a dangerous kind of middle course through these troubled times. On the one hand, he wrote strongly in support of the peasants' demands, but he also wrote strongly and passionately against rebellious violence, something he knew to be totally outside of the Christian's list of options. Martin returned to Wittenberg to be involved in bringing order back to a church and to a land in chaos. And I make mention of these two phenomena uh, this morning, however, because I think that they're actually illustrative of what happens when churches split. There is chaos with respect to both theology and leadership. That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be splits. From, from time to time, I figure there, ha- there have to be. But it does mean that when churches split, whether it's a small thing or a big thing or global or just a... When, when, a, when churches split... They should be prepared for a little chaos with respect to both theology and leadership. With respect to Thomas Munster and the prophets of Wittenberg, it is notable that what we would perhaps call Pentecostal or charismatic revivals, they are a feature of revival or reform movements throughout of church history, whether they be in Europe or England, America, Africa or Europe. Um, And these charismatic or Pentecostal revival kind of moments, they they remind us, they serve, they remind us that the gospel is relational. It calls individual Christians into what we would call a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. People come to a genuine faith in Christ, and they do indeed experience knowing God in a personal way, in a personal way that is so much more than just simply knowing about God, that knowing about God that had preceded it. Does God speak to people through the Holy Spirit in ways other than through the written words of Holy Scripture? Well, of course he does. How do I know that? The Bible tells me so. However, we need to be very careful 
The phenomenon that I know is Pentecostalism. Um, it can be defined, Pentecostalism can be defined as the theological position that says the supreme authority on matters of faith and doctrine is the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through the worshipping congregation by way of the prophets. With, with such a, an understanding of Pentecostalism, the Bible is good and useful, but it's what God is saying now that really counts. And where Pentecostalism is so defined, it is a departure from biblical Christianity. By all means, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but they always have to be measured against God's word, Holy Scripture. The Bible says that the Bible alone is the supreme authority. No, not the only authority. Granted, there are many different forms of authority, but each one of those alternate forms of, of authority or, or claim to revelation, all of them have to be measured against Holy Scripture, which alone is the supreme authority on matters of faith and doctrine. And with respect to the peasant rebellions, uh, again we see that pattern again and again and again through church history. Our, our natural assumption is often that the antidote to tyranny is egalitarianism. We often think that the antidote to tyranny is shared or corporate leadership. Actually, it's not. That's not biblical. The antidote to tyranny is Christ-following servant leadership. Well, th there's much more to say, but I'd rather focus today on something else that was happening, something a tad more personal for Martin, yet nevertheless something that was also going to change the world. And that thing that was happening for Martin was that he got married. And here's how it happened. As the gospel took hold of Germany and medieval Roman Catholicism was crumbling, there was a mass exodus of monks and nuns, of nuns and muns, out of the monasteries and the covenant, and the convents. Um, and in fact, on the radio, um, on the radio during the week, I, I heard about how the Augustinian order in Germany is still bemoaning the fact that Martin Luther ruined monasticism for Germany. And he did. Huge numbers of monks and nuns leaving um, monasteries and convents. And 12 young nuns in the neighboring village asked Martin Luther for help because they wanted to escape their convent. And Martin had to be careful because the punishment for removing nuns from monasteries, uh, from nunneries, was that was the death penalty. Martin enlisted the help of a respected merchant, a 60-year-old man named Leonard Kopp, who delivered barrels of pickled herring to the convent. And Leonard smuggled the girls out, not actually in barrels of pickled herring, or empty barrels that used to contain pickled herring, but um, as is sometimes depicted, but rather he smuggled them out on a covered wagon as though they were barrels of pickled herring. Uh, three of them immediately returned to their homes. The remaining nine arrived in Wittenberg in urgent need. A student uh, wrote to a friend, quote, a wagon load of Vestal virgins has just come to town. All more eager for marriage than for life. God grant them husbands lest worse befall. Unquote. Well, Martin found husbands, positions of employment, or situations of some sort for all of them except for one. 
and it had been suggested right at the start that Martin should marry one of them, but Martin was opposed to that idea. Not because he wasn't interested or because he thought badly of marriage, but rather he was still expecting basically to be burnt at the stake as a heretic at any time. It was just too dangerous. But after two years after the escape, one of the nuns, Catherine von Bora, she had a job in domestic service, uh, but no husband, no secure future. Uh, There'd been arrangements, but they'd fallen through. At uh, 26 years of age, Catherine knew that she was, according to the conventions of her time, she was barely still eligible to marry. Catherine suggested to Martin that he himself marry her. And perhaps she made this suggestion because Martin was 42. And according to the conventions of that time, he likewise would have been considered too old to marry. Martin did not take the suggestion seriously until he made a trip to visit his parents. To his surprise, his parents encouraged him to get married. They wanted grandchildren. Not long afterwards, he decided to marry Catherine. Amongst his reasons were these. Firstly, if he married Catherine but died soon afterwards, her status as a widow would be superior to the status she presently had as a housemaid. Secondly, if he married Catherine, he felt that that was a step of faith in God that would shame the devil. He'd already been excommunicated three times, um, including by his order and also by the Pope in Rome. Twice he'd vowed celibacy, once when ordained as a monk and another time when he was ordained as a priest. Getting married was therefore a powerful way of putting his money where his mouth was, so to speak. That Rome was wrong about both the gospel and about the Christian life, about what it meant to be holy. And Martin wrote to many people inviting them to the wedding fest, feast. Um, Leonard Kopp, um, the uh, pickled-barreled herring man, um, he was invited with these words, quote, I'm going to be married. God likes to work miracles and to make a fool of the world. You must come, unquote. Although it wasn't, it wasn't a romantic uh, love match as we'd understand it today, Martin and Catherine loved each other very, very much and had a happy household and life together, not without its struggles. Um, Martin once said, I would not exchange Katie for France or for Venice because God has given her to me and other women have worse faults. He often referred to her as my rib, but even more frequently as my lord. Katie had her hands full. Martin's income was extremely small, but that didn't stop him from being very generous and giving at times wildly beyond his ability. Even on their wedding night, Martin and Katie took in a friend who had arrived fleeing from the peasants' war. Martin and Katie were married in 1525, and they had their first child, Um, the first of six children, about a year later. For Martin, in addition to lecturing and preaching and reading and writing, Martin took care of a garden in which he grew lettuce, cabbage, peas, beans, melons and cucumbers. Katie looked after an orchard they had access to outside of the village and she grew apples, grapes, pears, nuts and peaches. Katie also looked after a fish pond from which she caught with a net Trout, carp, pike, and perch. 
She looked after their yard, which contained hens, ducks, pigs, and cows. And she did all of the slaughtering and butchering herself, as well as the pasturing of the animals, taking them out to pasture and bringing them back, and the selling of piglets and calves at market, as may be necessary. They lived in a cloister, which is a part of an old convent. And because they had the space, they took in the sick and they ran something of a small hospital at home. They also took in orphans and ultimately they raised four orphans along with their own children, making ten the number of kids they raised together. To bring in more money, they did something that lots of people were doing. Because they had the space, they opened up the house to student boarders. And at dinner time, the household would number up to 25. This kind of establishment required staff, maidservants and manservants, and Katie was the superintendent over everything. I, um, I chose um, the Proverbs 31 reading for today because of the obvious similarity between Katie Luther and, and the woman described in the text, the, the wife of noble character. And I've heard it said, and I understand that uh, sometimes it's assumed that the text, this text, the purpose of this text, um, it is sometimes assumed is to give women something to aim for, something to measure themselves against, that they should aim to be like the wife of noble character and to fit that description. And that may or may not be a good thing, but it's certainly not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is to give young Men, something to aim for. This text is for men, not for women. And I know that because the passage tells me so. The passage is introduced, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 1, with these words. The sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance his mother taught him. The book of Proverbs begins with words of wisdom from a father to his son. And the book of Proverbs closes with words of wisdom from a mother to her son. The father, in his words to his son, assumes that the son will marry a woman he finds sexually attractive. And he teaches him to drink from his own well only, so to speak, and to keep on choosing to delight in her only. The mother, in her words to her son also wants him to make wise choices. And that means esteeming women for who they are. You see, the, the ancient world was full of hymns of praise to young women for their beauty and charm. This is a hymn of praise, but it comes from a woman about a woman. And it allows her to be so much more, obviously, so much more than a sex object. She is praised for her creativity and productivity, her diligence and hard work. She is praised for the physical strength of her arms, and she's praised for her generosity. She's praised for her ministry as a teacher, as a leader in community welfare, and as an independent entrepreneurial businesswoman. Young men, this is the point. Charm is deceptive. And physical beauty is fleeting. But a wife who loves and serves the Lord Jesus is an inestimable asset. asset. Consider that carefully. Well, getting back to Martin and Katie, 
A, a famous feature of this household is that the student boarders regarded dinner time as an opportunity to continue their education. They brought notebooks with them, and they sat there over dinner, scribbling down every nugget that Martin had to offer. And Martin's book, Table Talk, contains well over 6,000, nearly 7,000 uh, entries and is famous amongst his works. He often expressed himself in, in Proverbs. Here are three. Uh, firstly, the monks are the fleas on God Almighty's fur coat. Very profound. Uh, here's another one. Uh, God uses lust to impel men to marriage, ambition to office, avarice to earning, and fear to faith. And the third, they are trying to make me into a fixed star. I am an irregular planet. In other words, don't look to me for guidance. And Martin said somewhere along the line, somewhere along the way, something along the lines of, quote, I have changed the world. Actually, all I did was teach the Bible, pray, and drink beer with my friends. But I have changed the world. Many of my ordained friends find that quote particularly encouraging. Katie and Martin, as key leaders of the European Reformation, had a huge influence in reconfiguring European ideas about Christian marriage and family. Their example was enormously influential. You, you see, the, the medieval Roman Catholic Church had, been ex, had an extremely elevated view of celibacy, an extremely elevated view of remaining single. And in, actually, in order to understand why they might think that, we have to actually go all the way back to Plato, some 300 years or more before Christ. And Plato and many of the Greek ph philosophers who followed him thought that the world was basically some kind of dualism, a, 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 a universe with two realities. One aspect was the spiritual, the theoretical, the non-physical aspect. And that world was perfect, and untainted. The other side of reality was the physical, matter, material world, which by definition in Plato's views was, was inherently inferior, imperfect, and tainted. So a Platonic idea might be that, that there exists in the spiritual realms the perfect chair. That is the essence of chairness. All chairs in are an imperfect, tainted, weaker version of that vision of perfection. Uh, matter was bad, the spiritual was good, thinking was better than doing. And so really, obviously, in the first, second, and third centuries after Christ, when Greeks heard about Jesus and the gospel and they read the New Testament, they're likely to have read the New Testament through Greek eyes rather than through Hebrew eyes. Now, Jesus and Paul made it clear that being single is easier than being married with respect to living a life devoted to God. But they were equally clear that the single life is not for everyone. In fact, it's not for most people. But Greek-thinking Christians may have misheard this as saying that the single life was superior to married life. So it would have been quite easy for a Greek-thinking Christian to forbid people from marrying. And the medieval Roman Catholic Church 
specialized in that. They channeled as many people as, as it could into holy orders, monks, nuns, priests, abbots, um, bishops and cardinals, all of etc., etc., all of whom were expected to make and maintain a vow of celibacy. The New Testament, on the other hand, assumes that the leaders of the Christian church will be married. It doesn't require that they be married. It just assumes that they will be married. Um, Paul wasn't. Jesus wasn't. But it assumes that they were likely to be married. And it assumes that there is a solid link between leading a family well and leading a church well. Um, What was happening was that the, the, the medieval Roman Catholic Church believed that where do, you, where do you learn to follow Jesus? You learn to follow Jesus in the convent or in the monastery. That was the right school for Christian character. That was the place where you learnt the Bible, you learnt to pray, and you grew in servant Christ-likeness. The monastery or convent offered you the place of acceptable service to Christ in this world. As far as Martin was concerned, the monastery was the one place you couldn't follow Jesus. He was wrong about that, but his point was sound. Really, his point was the monastery and the convent are very unnatural places for most people. For for Katie and for Martin, the married life, the family life, the home, that was the right school for Christian character. The place where you learnt the Bible, you learnt to pray, you grew in servant Christ-likeness. It was the home that taught you these things. The home offered you the place of acceptable service to Jesus in the world. The family was the place where you learnt how to love and learnt how to take care of God's creation. Well, um, life threw Katie and Martin into a conflict of interest most days. Katie's day was full of children and nappies and servants and animals and orchards and offal And the one thing she craved at the end of the day was some sensible adult conversation. Martin's day was full of sensible adult conversation. The one thing he craved at the end of the day was to be left alone with a good book. I said a good book, not Facebook. (laughs) Martin said... All my life is patience. I have to be patient with the Pope, with heretics, my family, and Katie. And he recognized that that was good for him. Martin and Katie, at risk of overstating it, but to to make the point, Martin and Katie rescued Christian family life as good and godly. Martin and Katie loved each other very dearly, but they didn't romanticize marriage as perhaps we do. And I think we've probably swung too far in the opposite way in terms of making marriage and romance an idol in our churches and an idol in our culture. Martin said, the first love is drunken. When the intoxication wears off, then comes real married love. Unquote. Um, We have certainly all kinds of problems in the world and in the church because we have idolized marriage, sex, and romantic love. In the Bible, these things are good, but they're not the be-all and end-all of human existence. Actually, the be-all and end-all of human existence is knowing Jesus and following him. We, We do well to remember that in the Bible, friendship, not marriage, friendship is the highest form of relationship in the Bible. 
Friendship love is the least self-interested and very often the most faithful and enduring. Married love, the kind of married love that Martin Luther spoke of, married love should be a profound, lifelong friendship with romantic elements, not a profound, lifelong romance with friendship elements. And after all, it's plain to see that God is reconciled to the fact that in his world and in his church, many will remain unmarried even though they would like to be married. God is not reconciled, on the other hand, to the idea that there could be anyone in the church without a friend. It is common to come to church and not find a wife or a husband. But it is anathema. It is a contradiction in terms to come to church and not find a friend. And on that note, I'll leave this series of talks on Martin Luther and the Reformation. I realize that from every point of view, historical, theological, and practical, I've left a heck of a lot unsaid. But I hope that this series has encouraged us to review church history as a way of sharpening our our understanding of Christian thinking as well as sharpening our understanding of the times in which we live. The Lord be with you.